0: Chapters fifteen and sixteen of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Princess of Mars. Chapter fifteen Sola tells me her story. When consciousness returned, and, as I soon learned, I was down but a moment, I sprang quickly to my feet searching for my sword, and there I found it, buried to the hilt in the green breast of Zad, who lay stone dead upon the ochre moss of the ancient sea-bottom. As I regained my full senses, I found his weapon piercing my left breast, but only through the flesh and muscles which cover my ribs entering near the center of my chest and coming out below the shoulder. As I had lunged, I had turned, so that his sword merely passed beneath the muscles, inflicting a painful but not dangerous wound. Removing the blade from my body, I also regained my own, and turning my back upon his ugly carcass, I moved, sick, sore, and disgusted, toward the chariots which bore my retinue and my belongings. A murmur of Martian applause greeted me, but I cared not for it. Bleeding and weak I reached my women, who, accustomed to such happenings, dressed my wounds, applying the wonderful healing and remedial agents, which make only the most instantaneous of death-blows fatal. Giving a Martian woman a chance and death must take a back seat. They soon had me patched up so that except for weakness from loss of blood and a little soreness around the wound I suffered no great distress from this thrust, which under earthly treatment undoubtedly would have put me flat on my back for days. As soon as they were through with me I hastened to the chariot of Dejah Thoris, where I found my poor Sola with her chest swathed in bandages, but apparently little the worse for her encounter with Sarkoja, whose dagger, it seemed, had struck the edge of one of Sola's metal breast ornaments, and thus deflected, had inflicted but a slight flesh wound. As I approached I found Dejah Thoris lying prone upon her silks and furs, her lithe form racked with sobs. She did not notice my presence, nor did she hear me speaking with Sola, who was standing a short distance from the vehicle. "'Is she injured?' I asked of Sola indicating Dejah Thoris by an inclination of my head. No, she answered, she thinks that you are dead. And that her grandmother's cat may now have no one to polish its teeth, I queried, smiling. I think you wrong her, John Carter, said Sola. I do not understand either her ways or yours, but I am sure the granddaughter of ten thousand jeddaks would never grieve like this over any who held but the highest claim upon her affections. They are a proud race, but they are just, as are all Barsoomians, and you must have hurt or wronged her grievously that she will not admit your existence living, though she mourns you dead. "'Tears are a strange sight upon Barsoom,' she continued and so it is difficult for me to interpret them. I have seen but two people weep in all my life other than Dejah Thoris. One wept from sorrow, the other from baffled rage. The first was my mother, years ago, before they killed her. The other was Sarkoja, when they dragged her from me today. "'Your mother!' I exclaimed. "'But Sola, you could not have known your mother, child!' "'But I did, and my father also,' she added. "'If you would like to hear the strange and unbarsoomian story, come to the chariot tonight, John Carter, and I will tell you that of which I have never spoken in all my life before. And now the signal has been given to resume the march. You must go.' "'I will come to-night, Sola,' I promised. Be sure to tell Dejah Thoris I am alive and well. I shall not force myself upon her, and be sure that you do not let her know I saw her tears. If she would speak with me, I but await her command. Sola mounted the chariot, which was swinging into its place in line, and I hastened to my waiting thoat and galloped to my station beside Tars Tarkas at the rear of the column. We made a most imposing and awe-inspiring spectacle as we strung out across the yellow landscape. The two hundred and fifty ornate and brightly colored chariots, preceded by an advance guard of some two hundred mounted warriors and chieftains, riding five abreast and one hundred yards apart, and followed by a like number in the same formation, with a score or more of flankers on either side the fifty extra mastodons, or heavy draught animals known as zitidars, and the five or six hundred extra thoats of the warriors running loose within the hollow square formed by the surrounding warriors, the gleaming metal and jewels of the gorgeous ornaments of the men and women, duplicated in the trappings of the zitidars and thoats, and interspersed with the flashing colors of magnificent silks and furs and feathers, lent a barbaric splendor to the caravan which would have turned an East Indian potentate green with envy. The enormous broad tires of the chariots and the padded feet of the animals brought forth no sound from the moss-covered sea-bottom, and so we moved in utter silence, like some huge phantasmagoria, except when the stillness was broken by the guttural growling of a goaded or the squealing of fighting thoats. The green Martians converse but little, and then, usually in monosyllables, low and like the faint rumbling of distant thunder. We traversed a trackless waste of moss, which, bending to the pressure of broad tire or padded foot, rose up again behind us, leaving no sign that we had passed. We might indeed have been the wraiths of the departed dead upon the dead sea of that dying planet for all the sound or sign we made in passing. It was the first march of a large body of men and animals I had ever witnessed, which raised no dust and left no spoor, for there is no dust upon Mars except in the cultivated districts during the winter months, and even then the absence of high winds renders it almost unnoticeable. We camped that night at the foot of the hills we had been approaching for two days, and which marked the southern boundary of this particular sea. Our animals had been two days without drink, nor had they had water for nearly two months, not since shortly after leaving Thark. But as Tars Tarkas explained to me, they required but little and can live almost indefinitely upon the moss which covers Barsoom, and which, he told me, holds in its tiny stems sufficient moisture to meet the limited demands of the animals. After partaking of my evening meal, of cheese-like food and vegetable milk, I sought out Sola, whom I found working by the light of a torch upon some of Tara's Tarkas' trappings. She looked up at my approach, her face lighting with pleasure and with welcome. "'I am glad you came,' she said. Dejah Thoris sleeps and I am lonely. Mine own people do not care for me, John Carter. I am too unlike them. It is a sad fate, since I must live my life amongst them, and I often wish that I were a true green Martian woman, without love and without hope, but I have known love, and so I am lost. I promised to tell you my story, or rather the story of my parents. From what I have learned of you and the ways of your people, I am sure the tale will not seem strange to you, but among green Martians it has no parallel within the memory of the oldest living Thark, nor do our legends hold many similar tales. My mother was rather small, in fact too small to be allowed the responsibilities of maternity, as our chieftains breed principally for size. She was also less cold and cruel than most green Martian women, and cared little for their society. She often roamed the deserted avenues of Thark alone, or went and sat among the wild flowers that decked the nearby hills, thinking thoughts and wishing wishes which I believe I alone among Tharkian women today may understand, for am I not the child of my mother? And there, among the hills, she met a young warrior whose duty it was to guard the feeding zitidars and thoats and see that they roamed not beyond the hills. They spoke at first only of such things as interest a community of tharks, but gradually, as they came to meet more often, and was now quite evident to both no longer by chance, they talked about themselves, their likes, their ambitions and their hopes. She trusted him and told him of the awful repugnance she felt for the cruelties of their kind, for the hideous loveless lives they must ever lead, and then she waited for the storm of denunciation to break from his cold hard lips, but instead he took her in his arms and kissed her. They kept their love a secret for six long years. She, my mother was of the retinue of the great Tal Hajis, while her lover was a simple warrior, wearing only his own metal. Had their defection from the traditions of the Tharks been discovered, both would have paid the penalty in the great arena before Tal Hajis and the assembled hordes. The egg from which I came was hidden beneath a great glass vessel upon the highest and most inaccessible of the partially ruined towers of ancient Thark. Once each year my mother visited it for the five long years it lay there in the process of incubation. She dared not come oftener, for in the mighty guilt of her conscience she feared that her every move was watched. During this period my father gained great distinction as a warrior and had taken the medal from several chieftains. His love for my mother had never diminished, and his own ambition in life was to reach a point where he might wrest the metal from Tal Hajus himself, and thus, as ruler of the Tharks, be free to claim her as his own, as well as, by the might of his power, protect the child which otherwise would be quickly dispatched should the truth become known. It was a wild dream that of wresting the metal from Tal Hajis in five short years, but his advance was rapid, and he soon stood high in the councils of Thark. But one day the chance was lost for ever, far as it could come in time to save his loved ones, for he was ordered away upon a long expedition to the ice-clad south, to make war upon the natives there and despoil them of their furs for such is the manner of the green Barsoomian. He does not labor, for what he can wrest in battle from others. He was gone for four years, and when he returned all had been over for three. For about a year after his departure, and shortly before the time for the return of an expedition which had gone forth to fetch the fruits of a community incubator, the egg had hatched. Thereafter my mother continued to keep me in the old tower, visiting me nightly and lavishing upon me the love the community life would have robbed us both of. She hoped, upon the return of the expedition from the incubator, to mix me with the other young assigned to the quarters of Tal Hajis, and thus escape the fate which would surely follow discovery of her sin against the ancient traditions of the green men. She taught me rapidly the language and customs of my kind, and one night she told me the story I have told you up to this point, impressing upon me the necessity for absolute secrecy, and the great caution I must exercise after she had placed me with the other young Tharks, to permit no one to guess that I was further advanced in education than they, nor by any sign to divulge in the presence of others my affection for her or my knowledge of my parentage, and then, drawing me close to her, she whispered in my ear the name of my father. And then a light flashed out upon the darkness of the tower chamber, and there stood Sarkoja, her gleaming, baleful eyes fixed in a frenzy of loathing and contempt upon my mother. The torrent of hatred and abuse she poured out upon her turned my young heart cold in terror. That she had heard the entire story was apparent, and that she had suspected something wrong from my mother's long nightly absences from her quarters accounted for her presence there on that fateful night. One thing she had not heard, nor did she know—the whispered name of my father. This was apparent from her repeated demands upon my mother to disclose the name of her partner in sin, but no amount of abuse or threats could wring this from her, and to save me from needless torture she lied, for she told Sarkoja that she alone knew, nor would she even tell her child. With final imprecations Sarkoja hastened away to Tal Hajus to report her discovery, and while she was gone my mother, wrapping me in silks and furs of her night coverings so that I was scarcely noticeable, descended to the streets and ran wildly away toward the outskirts of the city, in the direction which led her to the far south, out toward the man whose protection she might not claim, but on whose face she wished to look once more before she died. As we neared the city's southern extremity a sound came to us from across the mossy flat from the direction of the only pass through the hills which led to the gates, the pass by which caravans from either north or south or east or west would enter the city. The sounds we heard were the squealing of thoats and the grumbling of zitatars, with the occasional clank of arms which announced the approach of a body of warriors. The thought uppermost in her mind was that it was my father returned from his expedition but the cunning of the Thark held her from headlong and precipitant flight to greet him. Retreating into the shadows of a doorway, she awaited the coming of the cavalcade which shortly entered the avenue, breaking its formation and thronging the thoroughfare from wall to wall. As the head of the procession passed us, the lesser moon swung clear of the overhanging roofs and lit up the scene with all the brilliancy of her wondrous light. My mother shrank further back into the friendly shadows, and from her hiding-place saw that the expedition was not that of my father, but the returning caravan bearing the young Tharks. Instantly her plan was formed, and as a great chariot swung close to our hiding-place she slipped stealthily in upon the trailing tailboard, crouching low in the shadow of the high side, straining me to her bosom in a frenzy of love. She knew what I did not, that never again after that night would she hold me to her breast, nor was it likely we would ever look upon each other's face again. In the confusion of the plaza she mixed me with the other children, whose guardians during the journey were now free to relinquish their responsibility. We were herded together into a great room, fed by women who had not accompanied the expedition, and the next day— we were parcelled out among the retinues of the chieftains. I never saw my mother after that night. She was imprisoned by Tal Hajis, and every effort, including the most horrible and shameful torture, was brought to bear upon her to wring from her lips the name of my father. But she remained steadfast and loyal, dying at last amidst the laughter of Tal Hajus and his chieftains during some awful torture she was undergoing. I learned afterwards that she told them that she had killed me to save me from a like fate at their hands, and that she had thrown my body to the white apes. Sarkoja alone disbelieved her, and I feel to this day that she suspects my true origin, but does not dare expose me, at the present at all events, because she also guesses, I am sure, the identity of my father. When he returned from his expedition and learned the story of my mother's fate, I was present as Tal Hajis told him, but never by the quiver of a muscle did he betray the slightest emotion. Only he did not laugh as Tal Hajis gleefully described her death struggles. From that moment on. He was the cruellest of the cruel, and I am awaiting the day when he shall win the goal of his ambition, and feel the carcass of Tal beneath his foot, for I am sure that he but waits the opportunity to wreak a terrible vengeance, and that his great love is as strong in his breast as when it first transfigured him nearly forty years ago as I am that we sit here upon the edge of a world-old ocean while sensible people sleep, John Carter." "'And your father, Sola, is he with us now?' I asked. "'Yes,' she replied, "'but he does not know me for what I am, nor does he know who betrayed my mother to Tal I alone know my father's name, and only I and Tal Hadges and Sarkoja Know that it was she who carried the tale that brought death and torture upon her he loved. We sat silent for a few moments, she wrapped in the gloomy thoughts of her terrible past, and I in pity for the poor creatures whom the heartless, senseless customs of their race had doomed to loveless lives of cruelty and of hate. Presently she spoke, John Carter if ever a real man walk the cold, dead bosom of Barsoom, you are one. I know that I can trust you, and because the knowledge may some day help you, or him, or Dejah Thoris, or myself, I am going to tell you the name of my father, nor place any restrictions or conditions upon your tongue. When the time comes, speak the truth, if it seems best to you. I trust you, because I know that you are not cursed with the terrible trait of absolute and unswerving truthfulness, that you could lie like one of your own Virginia gentlemen if a lie would save others from sorrow or suffering. My father's name is Tars Tarkas." CHAPTER Sixteen: WE PLAN ESCAPE The remainder of our journey to Thark was uneventful. We were twenty days upon the road, crossing two sea-bottoms and passing through or around a number of ruined cities, mostly smaller than Korad. Twice we crossed the famous Martian waterways, or canals, so called by our earthly astronomers. When we approached these points a warrior would be sent far ahead with a powerful field-glass, and if no great body of red Martian troops was in sight, we would advance as close as possible without chance of being seen, and then camp until dark, when we would slowly approach the cultivated tract and, locating one of the numerous broad highways which cross these areas at regular intervals, creep silently and stealthily across the arid lands upon the other side. It required five hours to make one of these crossings without a single halt, and the other consumed the entire night so that we were just leaving the confines of the high-walled fields when the sun broke out upon us. Crossing in the darkness as we did, I was unable to see but little, except as the nearer moon, in her wild and ceaseless hurtling through the Barsoomian heavens, lit up little patches of the landscape from time to time, disclosing walled fields and low, rambling buildings, presenting much the appearance of earthly farms. There were many trees, methodically arranged, and some of them were of enormous height. There were animals in some of the enclosures, and they announced their presence by terrified squealings and snortings as they scented our queer, wild beasts and wilder human beings. Only once did I perceive a human being, and that was at the intersection of our crossroad with the wide, white turnpike which cuts each cultivated district longitudinally at its exact center. The fellow must have been sleeping beside the road, for as I came abreast of him he raised upon one elbow and after a single glance at the approaching caravan leaped shrieking to his feet and fled madly down the road, scaling a nearby wall with the agility of a scared cat. The Tharks paid him not the slightest attention. They were not out upon the warpath and the only sign that I had that they had seen him was a quickening of the pace of the caravan as we hastened toward the bordering desert which marked our entrance into the realm of Tal Hajus. Not once did I have speech with Dejah Thoris, as she sent no word to me that I would be welcome at her chariot, and my foolish pride kept me from making any advances. I verily believe that a man's way with women is in inverse ratio to his prowess among men. The weakling and the saphead have often great ability to charm the fair sex, while the fighting man who can face a thousand real dangers unafraid sits hiding in the shadows like some frightened child. Just thirty days after my advent upon Barsoom we entered the ancient city of Thark from whose long-forgotten people this horde of green men have stolen even their name. The hordes of Thark number some thirty thousand souls, and are divided into twenty-five communities. Each community has its own jed and lesser chieftains, but all are under the rule of Tal Hajus, Jeddak of Thark. Five communities make their headquarters at the city of Thark and the balance are scattered among the other deserted cities of ancient Mars throughout the district claimed by Tal hedges We made our entry into the great city plaza early in the afternoon. There were no enthusiastic friendly greetings for the returned expedition. Those who chanced to be in sight spoke the names of warriors or women with whom they came in direct contact in the formal greeting of their kind. But when it was discovered that they brought two captives, a greater interest was aroused, and Dejah Thoris and I were the centers of inquiring groups. We were soon assigned to new quarters, and the balance of the day was devoted to settling ourselves to the changed conditions. My home now was upon an avenue leading into the plaza from the south, the main artery down which we had marched from the gates of the city. I was at the far end of the square and had an entire building to myself. The same grandeur of architecture which was so noticeable a characteristic of Korad was in evidence here, only, if that were possible, on a larger and richer scale. My quarters would have been suitable for housing the greatest of earthly emperors, but to these queer creatures nothing about a building appealed to them but its size and the enormity of its chambers. The larger the building, the more desirable. And so Tal Hajis occupied what must have been an enormous public building, the largest in the city, but entirely unfitted for residence purposes. The next largest was reserved for Lorquas Tomel, the next for the jed of a lesser rank, and so on to the bottom of the list of five jeds. The warriors occupied the buildings with the chieftains to whose retinues they belonged or, if they preferred, sought shelter among any of the thousands of untenanted buildings in their own quarter of town, each community being assigned a certain section of the city. The selection of building had to be made in accordance with these divisions, except, in so far as the Jeds were concerned, they all occupying edifices which fronted upon the plaza. When I had finally put my house in order, or rather seen that it had been done, It was nearing sunset, and I hastened out with the intention of locating Sola and her charges, as I had determined upon having speech with Dejah Thoris and trying to impress on her the necessity of our at least patching up a truce until I could find some way of aiding her to escape. I searched in vain until the upper rim of the great red sun was just disappearing behind the horizon and then I spied the ugly head of Woola peering from a second-story window on the opposite side of the very street where I was quartered, but nearer the plaza. Without waiting for a further invitation, I bolted up the winding runway which led to the second floor, and entering a great chamber at the front of the building was greeted by the frenzied Woola, who threw his great carcass upon me, nearly hurling me to the floor. The poor old fellow was so glad to see me that I thought he would devour me his head split from ear to ear, showing his three rows of tusks in his hobgoblin smile. Quieting him with a word of command and a caress, I looked hurriedly through the approaching gloom for a sign of Dejah Thoris, and then, not seeing her, I called her name. There was an answering murmur from the far corner of the apartment and with a couple of quick strides I was standing beside her where she crouched among the furs and silks upon an ancient carved wooden seat. As I waited she rose to her full height and looked me straight in the eye and said, "'What would Dotar Sojat, Thark, of Dejah Thoris, his captive?' "'Dejah Thoris, I do not know how I have angered you. It was furthest from my desire to hurt or offend you whom I had hoped to protect and comfort. Have none of me if it is your will, but that you must aid me in effecting your escape, if such a thing is possible, is not my request, but my command. When you are safe once more at your father's court you may do with me as you please, but from now on until that day I am your master, and you must obey and aid me." She looked at me long and earnestly, and I thought that she was softening toward me. I understand your words, Dotar Sojat, she replied, but you I do not understand. You are a queer mixture of child and man, of brute and noble. I only wish that I might read your heart. Look down at your feet, Dejah Thoris. It lies there now, where it has lain since that other night at Korad, and where it will ever lie, beating alone for you, until death stills it forever." She took a little step toward me, her beautiful hands outstretched in a strange groping gesture. "'What do you mean, John Carter?' she whispered. "'What are you saying to me?' "'I am saying what I had promised myself that I would not say to you, at least until you were no longer a captive among the green men. What from your attitude toward me for the past twenty days I had thought never to say to you. I am saying, Dejah Thoris, that I am yours, body and soul, to serve you, to fight for you, and to die for you. Only one thing I ask of you in return, and that is that you make no sign, either of condemnation or of approbation of my words, until you are safe among your own people, and that whatever sentiments you harbor toward me, they be not influenced or colored by gratitude. Whatever I may do to serve you, will be prompted solely from selfish motives, since it gives me more pleasure to serve you than not." "'I will respect your wishes, John Carter, because I understand the motives which prompt them, and I accept your service no more willingly than I bow to your authority. Your word shall be my law. I have twice wronged you in my thoughts, and again I ask your forgiveness.' Further conversation of a personal nature was prevented by the entrance of Sola, who was much agitated and wholly unlike her usual calm and possessed self. "'That horrible Sarkoja has been before Tal she cried, "'and from what I heard upon the plaza there is little hope for either of you.' "'What do they say?' inquired Dejah Thoris. "'That you will be thrown to the wild Calots,' dogs in the great arena, as soon as the hordes have assembled for the yearly games." "'Sola,' I said, "'you are a Thark, but you hate and loathe the customs of your people as much as we do. Will you not accompany us in one supreme effort to escape? I am sure that Dejah Thoris can offer you a home and protection among her people, and your fate can be no worse among them than it must ever be here.' Yes cried Dejah Thoris, "'Come with us, Sola. You will be better off among the red men of Helium than you are here, and I can promise you not only a home with us, but the love and affection your nature craves, and which must always be denied you by the customs of your own race. Come with us, Sola. We might go without you, but your fate would be terrible if they thought you had connived to aid us.' I know that even fear would not tempt you to interfere in our escape. But we want you with us. We want you to come to a land of sunshine and happiness, amongst a people who know the meaning of love, of sympathy, and of gratitude. Say that you will, Sola. Tell me that you will." "'The great waterway which leads to Helium is but fifty miles to the south,' murmured Sola, half to herself. A swift thoat might make it in three hours, and then to Helium is five hundred miles, most of the way through thinly settled districts. They would know and they would follow us. We might hide among the great trees for a time, but the chances are small indeed for escape. They would follow us to the very gates of Helium, and they would take toll of life at every step. You do not know them." Is there no other way we might reach Helium? I asked. Can you not draw me a rough map of the country we must traverse, Dejah Thoris?" Yes, she replied, and taking a great diamond from her hair, she drew upon the marble floor the first map of Barsoomian territory I had ever seen. It was crisscrossed in every direction with long straight lines, sometimes running parallel and sometimes converging toward some great circle. The lines, she said, were waterways, the circles, cities, and one far to the northwest of us she pointed out as Helium. There were other cities closer, but she said she feared to enter many of them, as they were not all friendly toward Helium. Finally, after studying the map carefully in the moonlight, which now flooded the room, I pointed out a waterway far to the north of us which also seemed to lead to Helium. Does this not pierce your grandfather's territory? I asked. Yes," she answered, but it is two hundred miles north of us. It is one of the waterways we crossed on the trip to Thark. They would never suspect that we would try for that distant waterway, I answered, and that is why I think that is the best route for our escape. Sola agreed with me, and it was decided that we should leave Thark this same night, just as quickly, in fact, as I could find and saddle my thoats. Sola was to ride one and Dejah Thoris and I the other, each of us carrying sufficient food and drink to last us for two days, since the animals could not be urged too rapidly for so long a distance. I directed Sola to proceed with Dejah Thoris along one of the less frequented avenues to the southern boundary of the city, where I would overtake them with the thoats as quickly as possible, then leaving them to gather what food, silks, and furs we were to need I slipped quietly to the rear of the first floor, and entered the courtyard where our animals were moving restlessly about, as was their habit, before settling down for the night. In the shadows of the buildings, and out beneath the radiance of the Martian moons, move the great herd of thoats and zitidars, the latter grunting their low gutturals, and the former occasionally emitting the sharp squeal which denotes the almost habitual state of rage in which these creatures passed their existence. They were quieter now, owing to the absence of man, but as they scented me they became more restless and their hideous noise increased. It was risky business, this entering a paddock of thoats alone and at night. First, because their increasing noisiness might warn the nearby warriors that something was amiss, and also because for the slightest cause— or for no cause at all some great bull thoat might take it upon himself to lead a charge upon me. Having no desire to awaken their nasty tempers upon such a night as this, where so much depended upon secrecy and dispatch, I hugged the shadows of the buildings, ready, at an instant's warning, to leap into the safety of a nearby door or window. Thus I moved silently to the great gates which opened upon the street at the back of the court and as I neared the exit I called softly to my two animals. How I thanked the kind providence which had given me the foresight to win the love and confidence of these wild dumb brutes, for presently from the far side of the court I saw two huge bulks forcing their way toward me through the surging mountains of flesh. They came quite close to me, rubbing their muzzles against my body, and nosing for the bits of food it was always my practice to reward them with. Opening the gates, I ordered the two great beasts to pass out, and then slipping quietly after them, I closed the portals behind me. I did not saddle or mount the animals there, but instead walked quietly in the shadows of the buildings toward an unfrequented avenue which led toward the point I had arranged to meet Dejah Thoris and Sola. With the noiselessness of disembodied spirits we moved stealthily among the deserted streets, but not until we were within sight of the plain beyond the city did I commence to breathe freely. I was sure that Sola and Dejah Thoris would find no difficulty in reaching our rendezvous undetected. But with my great thoughts, I was not so sure for myself, as it was quite unusual for warriors to leave the city after dark. In fact, there was no place for them to go within any but a long ride. I reached the appointed meeting-place safely, but as Dejah Thoris and Sola were not there, I led my animals into the entrance hall of one of the large buildings. Presuming that one of the other women of the same household may have come in to speak to Sola, and so delayed their departure, I did not feel any undue apprehension until nearly an hour had passed without a sign of them, and by the time another half-hour had crawled away I was becoming filled with grave anxiety. Then there broke upon the stillness of the night the sound of an approaching party, which, from the noise, I knew could be no fugitives creeping stealthily toward liberty. Soon the party was near me, and from the black shadows of my entranceway, I perceived a score of mounted warriors, who in passing dropped a dozen words that fetched my heart clean into the top of my head. He would likely have arranged to meet them just without the city. And so? I heard no more. They had passed on, but it was enough. Our plan had been discovered, and the chances for escape from now on to the fearful end would be small indeed. My one hope now was to return undetected to the quarters of Dejah Thoris and learn what fate had overtaken her, but how to do it with these great monstrous thoughts upon my hands, now that the city probably was aroused by the knowledge of my escape, was a problem of no mean proportions. Suddenly an idea occurred to me, and acting on my knowledge of the construction of the buildings of these ancient Martian cities with a hollow court within the center of each square, I groped my way blindly through the dark chambers calling the great thoats after me. They had difficulty in negotiating some of the doorways, But as the buildings fronting the city's principal exposures were all designed upon a magnificent scale, they were able to wriggle through without sticking fast, and thus we finally made the inner courts where I found, as I had expected, the usual carpet of moss-like vegetation which would prove their food and drink until I could return them to their own enclosure. That they would be as quiet and contented here as elsewhere I was confident nor was there but the remotest possibility that they would be discovered, as the green men had no great desire to enter these outlying buildings, which were frequented by the only thing, I believe, which caused them the sensation of fear, the great white apes of Barsoom. Removing the saddle trappings, I hid them just within the rear doorway of the building through which we had entered the court, and turning the beasts loose, quickly made my way across the court to the rear of the buildings upon the further side, and thence to the avenue beyond. Waiting in the doorway of the building until I was assured that no one was approaching, I hurried across to the opposite side and through the first doorway to the court beyond. Thus crossing through court after court, with only the slight chance of detection which the necessary crossing of the avenues entailed, I made my way in safety to the courtyard in the rear of Dejah Thoris' quarters. Here, of course, I found the beasts of the warriors who quartered in the adjacent buildings, and the warriors themselves I might expect to meet within if I entered. But, fortunately for me, I had another and safer method of reaching the upper story where Dejah Thoris should be found, and after first determining as nearly as possible which of the buildings she occupied, For I had never observed them before from the court side, I took advantage of my relatively great strength and agility and sprang upward until I grasped the sill of a second-story window, which I thought to be in the rear of her apartment. Drawing myself inside the room, I moved stealthily toward the front of the building, and not until I had quite reached the doorway of her room was I made aware, by voices, that it was occupied. I did not rush headlong in but listened without to assure myself that it was Dejah Thoris, and that it was safe to venture within. It was well, indeed, that I took this precaution, for the conversation I heard was in the low gutturals of men, and the words which finally came to me proved a most timely warning. The speaker was a chieftain, and he was giving orders to four of his warriors. And when he returns to this chamber, he was saying, as he surely will when he finds she does not meet him at the city's edge, you four are to spring upon him and disarm him. It will require the combined strength of all of you to do it if the reports they bring back from Korad are correct. When you have him fast bound, bear him to the vaults beneath the jeddak's quarters and chain him securely where he may be found when Tal Hajis wishes him. Allow him to speak with none nor permit any other to enter this apartment before he comes. There will be no danger of the girl returning, for by this time she is safe in the arms of Tal Hajus, and may all her ancestors have pity upon her, for Tal Hajus will have none. The great Sarkoja has done a noble knight's work. I go, and if you fail to capture him when he comes, I commend your carcasses to the cold bosom of Is." End of chapter sixteen. Chapters seventeen and eighteen of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Chapter seventeen. A costly recapture. As the speaker ceased, he turned to leave the apartment by the door where I was standing, but I needed to wait no longer. I had heard enough to fill my soul with dread, and stealing quietly away, I returned to the courtyard by the way I had come. My plan of action was formed upon the instant, and crossing the square and the bordering avenue upon the opposite side, I soon stood within the courtyard of Tal Hajis. The brilliantly lighted apartments on the first floor told me where first to seek, and advancing to the windows I peered within. I soon discovered that my approach was not to be the easy thing I had hoped, for the rear rooms bordering the court were filled with warriors and women. I then glanced up at the stories above, discovering that the third was apparently unlighted, and so decided to make my entrance to the building from that point. It was the work of but a moment for me to reach the windows above, and soon I had drawn myself within the sheltering shadows of the unlighted third floor. Fortunately, the room I had selected was untenanted, and creeping noiselessly to the corridor beyond, I discovered a light in the apartments ahead of me. Reaching what appeared to be a doorway, I discovered that it was but an opening upon an immense inner chamber which towered from the first floor, two stories below me, to the dome-like roof of the building, high above my head. The floor of this great circular hall was thronged with chieftains, warriors, and women, and at one end was a great raised platform upon which squatted the most hideous beast I had ever put my eyes upon. He had all the cold, hard, cruel, terrible features of the green warriors, but accentuated and debased by the animal passions to which he had given himself over for many years. There was not a mark of dignity or pride upon his bestial countenance, while his enormous bulk spread itself out upon the platform where he squatted like some huge devil-fish his six limbs accentuating the similarity in a horrible and startling manner. But the sight that froze me with apprehension was the sight of Dejah Thoris and Sola standing there before him, and the fiendish leer of him as he let his great protruding eyes gloat upon the lines of her beautiful figure. She was speaking, but I could not hear what she said, nor could I make out the low grumbling of his reply. She stood there erect before him, her head high held, and even at the distance I was from them I could read the scorn and disgust upon her face, as she let her haughty glance rest without sign of fear upon him. She was indeed the proud daughter of a thousand jeddaks, every inch of her dear, precious little body, so small, so frail beside the towering warriors around her but in Her Majesty dwarfing them into insignificance. She was the mightiest figure among them, and I verily believe that they felt it. Presently Talhadjus made a sign that the chamber be cleared, and that the prisoners be left alone before him. Slowly the chieftains, the warriors, and the women melted away into the shadows of the surrounding chambers and Dejah Thoris and Sola stood alone before the jeddak of the Tharks. One chieftain alone had hesitated before departing. I saw him standing in the shadows of a mighty column, his fingers nervously toying with the hilt of his great-sword, and his cruel eyes bent in implacable hatred upon Tal Hajus. It was Tars Tarkas and I could read his thoughts as they were an open book for the undisguised loathing upon his face. He was thinking of that other woman, who, forty years ago, had stood before this beast, and could I have spoken a word into his ear at that moment, the reign of Tal Hajus would have been over. But finally he also strode from the room, not knowing that he left his own daughter at the mercy of the creature he most loathed. Tal Hedges arose, and I, half fearing, half anticipating his intentions, hurried to the winding runway which led to the floors below. No one was near to intercept me, and I reached the main floor of the chamber unobserved, taking my station in the shadow of the same column that Tara's Tarkas had but just deserted. As I reached the floor, Tal Hedges was speaking. "'Princess of Helium!' I might wring a mighty ransom from your people, would I but return you to them unharmed. But a thousand times rather would I watch that beautiful face writhe in the agony of torture. It shall be long drawn out, that I promise you. Ten days of pleasure were all too short to show the love I harbour for your race. The terrors of your death shall haunt the slumbers of the red men through all the ages to come they will shudder in the shadows of the night as their fathers tell them of the awful vengeance of the green men of the power and might and hate and cruelty of tal but before the torture you shall be mine for one short hour and the word of that too shall go forth to tardos mors jeddak of Helium, your grandfather that he may grovel upon the ground in the agony of his sorrow. To-morrow the torture will commence. To-night thou art Tal Hajus. Come." He sprang down from the platform and grasped her roughly by the arm, but scarcely had he touched her than I leaped between them. My short sword, sharp and gleaming, was in my right hand. I could have plunged it into his putrid heart before he realized that I was upon him. But as I raised my arm to strike, I thought of Tars Tarkus, and with all my rage, with all my hatred, I could not rob him of that sweet moment for which he had lived and hoped all these long weary years, and so instead I swung my good right fist full upon the point of his jaw. Without a sound. slipped to the floor as one dead. In the same deathly silence I grasped Dejah Thoris by the hand, and motioning Sola to follow we sped noiselessly from the chamber and to the floor above. Unseen we reached a rear window, and with the straps and leather of my trappings I lowered first Sola and then Dejah Thoris to the ground below. Dropping lightly after them, I drew them rapidly around the court in the shadows of the buildings, and thus we returned over the same course I had so recently followed from the distant boundary of the city. We finally came upon my thoats in the courtyard where I had left them, and placing the trappings upon them, we hastened through the building to the avenue beyond. Mounting, Sola upon one beast, and Dejah Thoris behind me upon the other, we rode from the city of Thark through the hills to the south. Instead of circling back around the city to the northwest and toward the nearest waterway which lay so short a distance from us, we turned to the northeast and struck out upon the mossy waste across which, for two hundred dangerous and weary miles, lay another main artery leading to Helium. No word was spoken until we had left the city far behind, but I could hear the quiet sobbing of Dejah Thoris as she clung to me with her dear head resting against my shoulder. "'If we make it, my chieftain, the debt of Helium will be a mighty one, greater than she can ever pay you. And should we not make it,' she continued, "'the debt is no less, though Helium will never know.' for you have saved the last of our line from worse than death." I did not answer, but instead reached to my side and pressed the little fingers of her I loved, where they clung to me for support. And then, in unbroken silence, we sped over the yellow moonlit moss, each of us occupied with his own thoughts. For my part, I could not be other than joyful had I tried with Dejah Thoris' warm body pressed close to mine, and with all our unpassed danger my heart was singing as gaily as though we were already entering the gates of Helium. Our earlier plans had been so sadly upset that we now found ourselves without food or drink, and I alone was armed. We therefore urged our beasts to a speed that must tell on them sorely before we could hope to sight the end of the first stage of our journey. We rode all night and all the following day with only a few short rests. On the second night both we and our animals were completely fagged, and so we lay down upon the moss and slept for some five or six hours, taking up the journey once more before daylight. All the following day we rode, and when, late in the afternoon, we had sighted no distant trees, the mark of the great waterways throughout all Barsoom, The terrible truth flashed upon us. We were lost. Evidently we had circled, but which way it was difficult to say, nor did it seem possible with the sun to guide us by day and the moons and stars by night. At any rate no waterway was in sight, and the entire party was almost ready to drop from hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Far ahead of us and a trifle to the right, we could distinguish the outlines of low mountains. These we decided to attempt to reach, in the hope that from some ridge we might discern the missing waterway. Night fell upon us before we reached our goal, and almost fainting from weariness and weakness, we lay down and slept. I was awakened early in the morning by some huge body pressing close to mine, and opening my eyes with a start, I beheld my blessed old Woola snuggling close to me. The faithful brute had followed us across that trackless waste to share our fate, whatever it might be. Putting my arms about his neck, I pressed my cheek close to his. Nor am I ashamed that I did it, nor of the tears that came to my eyes as I thought of his love for me. Shortly after this Dejah Thoris and Sola awakened and it was decided that we push on at once in an effort to gain the hills. We had gone scarcely a mile when I noticed that my thoat was commencing to stumble and stagger in a most pitiful manner, although we had not attempted to force them out of a walk since about noon of the preceding day. Suddenly he lurched wildly to one side and pitched violently to the ground. Dejah Thoris and I were thrown clear of him and fell upon the soft moss with scarcely a jar, but the poor beast was in a pitiable condition, not even being able to rise, although relieved of our weight. Sola told me that the coolness of the night when it fell, together with the rest, would doubtless revive him, and so I decided not to kill him as was my first intention, as I had thought it cruel to leave him alone there to die of hunger and thirst. Relieving him of his trappings, which I flung down beside him, we left the poor fellow to his fate, and pushed on with the one thoat as best we could. Sola and I walked, making Dejah Thoris ride, much against her will. In this way we had progressed to within about a mile of the hills we were endeavoring to reach, when Dejah Thoris, from her point of vantage upon the thoat, cried out that she saw a great party of mounted men filing down from a pass in the hills several miles away. Sola and I both looked in the direction she indicated, and there, plainly discernible, were several hundred mounted warriors. They seemed to be headed in a southwesterly direction, which would take them away from us. They doubtless were Thark warriors who had been set out to capture us, and we breathed a great sigh of relief that we were traveling in the opposite direction. Quickly lifting Dejah Thoris from the thoat, I commanded the animal to lie down and we three did the same, presenting as small an object as possible for fear of attracting the attention of the warriors toward us. We could see them as they filed out of the pass, just for an instant before they were lost to view behind a friendly ridge. To us a most providential ridge. Since, had they been in view for any great length of time, they scarcely could have failed to discover us. As what proved to be the last warrior came into view from the pass, we halted and, to our consternation, threw his small but powerful field-glass to his eye and scanned the sea-bottom in all directions. Evidently he was a chieftain, for in certain marching formations among the green men a chieftain brings up the extreme rear of the column. As his glass swung toward us, our hearts stopped in our breasts, and I could feel the cold sweat start from every pore in my body. Presently it swung full upon us, and stopped. The tension on our nerves was near the breaking point and I doubt if any of us breathed for the few moments he held us covered by his glass. And then he lowered it, and we could see him shout a command to the warriors who had passed from our sight beyond the ridge. He did not wait for them to join him, however, instead he wheeled his throat and came tearing madly in our direction. There was but one slight chance, and that we must take quickly. Raising my strange Martian rifle to my shoulder, I sighted and touched the button which controlled the trigger. There was a sharp explosion as the missile reached its goal, and the charging chieftain pitched backward from his flying mount. Springing to my feet, I urged the thoat to rise, and directed Sola to take Dejah Thoris with her upon him and make a mighty effort to reach the hills before the green warriors were upon us. I knew that in the ravines and gullies they might find a temporary hiding-place and even though they died there of hunger and thirst it would be better so than that they fell into the hands of the Tharks. Forcing my two revolvers upon them as a slight means of protection, and as a last resort, as an escape for themselves from the horrid death which recapture would surely mean, I lifted Dejah Thoris in my arms and placed her upon the thoat behind Sola, who had already mounted at my command. "'Good-bye, my princess,' I whispered, "'we may meet in Helium yet. I have escaped from worse plights than this,' and I tried to smile as I lied. "'What?' she cried. "'Are you not coming with us?' "'How may I, Dejah Thoris? Someone must hold these fellows off for a while, and I can better escape them alone than could the three of us together.' She sprang quickly from the thoat, and throwing her dear arms about my neck, turned to Sola, saying with quiet dignity, "'Fly, Sola! Dejah Thoris remains to die with the man she loves!' Those words are engraved upon my heart. Ah, gladly would I give up my life a thousand times could I only hear them once again! But I could not then give even a second to the rapture of her sweet embrace and pressing my lips to hers for the first time, I picked her up bodily and tossed her to her seat behind Sola again, commanding the latter, in peremptory tones, to hold her there by force, and then, slapping the thoat upon the flank, I saw them borne away, Dejah Thoris struggling to the last to free herself from Sola's grasp. Turning, I beheld the green warriors mounting the ridge and looking for their chieftain. In a moment they saw him, and then me. But scarcely had they discovered me than I commenced firing, lying flat upon my belly in the moss. I had an even hundred rounds in the magazine of my rifle, and another hundred in the belt at my back, and I kept up a continuous stream of fire until I saw all of the warriors who had been first to return from behind the ridge either dead or scurrying to cover. My respite was short-lived, however, for soon the entire party, numbering some thousand men, came charging into view, racing madly toward me. I fired until my rifle was empty and they were almost upon me. And then a glance showing me that Dejah Thoris and Sola had disappeared among the hills, I sprang up, throwing down my useless gun, and started away in the direction opposite to that taken by Sola and her charge. If ever Martians had an exhibition of jumping, it was granted those astonished warriors on that day long years ago, but while it led them away from Dejah Thoris, it did not distract their attention from endeavouring to capture me. They raced wildly after me, until, finally, my foot struck a projecting piece of quartz and down I went, sprawling upon the moss. As I looked up they were upon me and although I drew my long-sword in an attempt to sell my life as dearly as possible, it was soon over. I reeled beneath their blows which fell upon me in perfect torrents. My head swam, all was black, and I went down beneath them to oblivion. CHAPTER 18, CHained in Warhoon It must have been several hours before I regained consciousness and I well remember the feeling of surprise which swept over me as I realized that I was not dead. I was lying among a pile of sleeping silks and furs in the corner of a small room in which were several green warriors, and bending over me was an ancient and ugly female. As I opened my eyes, she turned to one of the warriors, saying, He will live, O Jed. 'Tis well replied the one so addressed, rising and approaching my couch. He should render rare sport for the great games. And now, as my eyes fell upon him, I saw that he was no Thark, for his ornaments and metal were not of that horde. He was a huge fellow, terribly scarred about the face and chest, and with one broken tusk and a missing ear. Strapped on either breast were human skulls, and, depending from these, a number of dried human hands. His reference to the great games, of which I had heard so much while among the Tharks, convinced me that I had but jumped from purgatory into Gehenna. After a few more words with the female, during which she assured him that I was now fully fit to travel, the jed ordered that we mount and ride after the main column. I was strapped securely to as wild and unmanageable a thoat as I had ever seen, and with a mounted warrior on either side to prevent the beast from bolting, we rode forth at a furious pace in pursuit of the column. My wounds gave me but little pain, so wonderfully and rapidly had the applications and injections of the female exercised their therapeutic powers, and so deftly had she bound and plastered the injuries. Just before dark, we reached the main body of troops shortly after they had made camp for the night. I was immediately taken before the leader, who proved to be the jeddak of the hordes of Warhoon. Like the jed who had brought me, he was frightfully scarred, and also decorated with the breastplate of human skulls and dried dead hands, which seemed to mark all the greater warriors among the Warhoons, as well as to indicate their awful ferocity which greatly transcends even that of the Tharks. The jeddak, Bar Comus, who was comparatively young, was the object of the fierce and jealous hatred of his old lieutenant, Dak Kova, the jed who had captured me, and I could not but note the almost studied efforts which the latter made to affront his superior. He entirely omitted the usual formal salutation as we entered the presence of the jeddak and as he pushed me roughly before the ruler, he exclaimed in a loud and menacing voice, "'I have brought a strange creature wearing the metal of a thark, whom it is my pleasure to have battle with a wild thoat at the great games.' "'He will die as Barcomas, your jeddak, sees fit, if at all,' replied the young ruler, with emphasis and dignity. "'If at all?' Roared Dakova, by the dead hands at my throat, but he shall die, Barcomas, no maudlin weakness on your part shall save him. Oh, would that warhoon were ruled by a real Jeddak rather than a water-hearted weakling from whom even old Dakkova could tear the metal with his bare hands. Barcomas eyed the defiant and insubordinate chieftain for an instant his expression one of haughty, fearless contempt and hate, and then, without drawing a weapon and without uttering a word, he hurled himself at the throat of his defamer. I never before had seen two green Martian warriors battle with nature's weapons, and the exhibition of animal ferocity which ensued was as fearful a thing as the most disordered imagination could picture. They tore at each other's eyes and ears with their hands, and with their gleaming tusks repeatedly slashed and gored until both were cut fairly to ribbons from head to foot. Bar Comas had much the better of the battle, as he was stronger, quicker, and more intelligent. It soon seemed that the encounter was done, saving only the final thrust which bare Comus slipped in, breaking away from a clinch. It was the one little opening that Dakova needed, and hurling himself at the body of his adversary, he buried his single mighty tusk in Barcoma's groin, and with a last powerful effort ripped the young jeddak wide open the full length of his body, the great tusk finally wedging in the bones of Barcoma's jaw. Victor and vanquished rolled limp and lifeless upon the moss a huge mass of torn and bloody flesh. Barcomus was stone dead, and only the most Herculean efforts on the part of Dakova's females saved him from the fate he deserved. Three days later he walked without assistance to the body of Barcomus, which by custom had not been moved from where it fell, and placing his foot upon the neck of his erstwhile ruler he assumed the title of Jeddak of Warhoon. The dead Jeddak's hands and head were removed to be added to the ornaments of his conqueror, and then his women cremated what remained, amid wild and terrible laughter. The injuries to Dakova had delayed the march so greatly that it was decided to give up the expedition, which was arrayed upon a small Thark community in retaliation for the destruction of the incubator until after the great games, and the entire body of warriors, ten thousand in number, turned back toward Warhoon. My introduction to these cruel and bloodthirsty people was but an index to the scenes I witnessed almost daily while with them. They were a smaller horde than the Tharks, but much more ferocious. Not a day passed but that some members of the various Warhoon communities met in deadly combat. I have seen as high as eight mortal duels within a single day. We reached the city of Warhun after some three days' march, and I was immediately cast into a dungeon and heavily chained to the floor and walls. Food was brought me at intervals, but owing to the utter darkness of the place I do not know whether I lay there days or weeks or months. It was the most horrible experience of all my life and that my mind did not give way to the terrors of that inky blackness has been a wonder to me ever since. The place was filled with creeping, crawling things, cold, sinuous bodies passed over me when I lay down, and in the darkness I occasionally caught glimpses of gleaming, fiery eyes fixed in horrible intentness upon me. No sound reached me from the world above and no word would my jailer vouchsafe when my food was brought to me, although I at first bombarded him with questions. Finally, all the hatred and maniacal loathing for these awful creatures who had placed me in this horrible place was centered, by my tottering reason, upon this single emissary who represented to me the entire horde of Warhoons. I had noticed that he always advanced with his dim torch to where he could place the food within my reach, and as he stooped to place it upon the floor, his head was about on a level with my breast. So, with the cunning of a madman, I backed into the far corner of my cell when next I heard him approaching, and gathering a little slack of the great chain which held me in my hand, I waited his coming, crouching like some beast of prey. As he stooped to place my food upon the ground, I swung the chain above my head and crashed the links with all my strength upon his skull. Without a sound, he slipped to the floor, stone dead. Laughing and chattering like the idiot I was fast becoming, I fell upon his prostrate form, my fingers feeling for his dead throat. Presently they came in contact with a small chain at the end of which dangled a number of keys. The touch of my fingers on these keys brought back my reason with the suddenness of thought. No longer was I a gibbering idiot, but a sane, reasoning man with the means of escape within my very hands. As I was groping to remove the chain from about my victim's neck, I glanced up into the darkness to see six pairs of gleaming eyes fixed, unwinking, upon me. Slowly they approached, and slowly I shrank back from the awful horror of them. Back into my corner I crouched, holding my hands' palms out before me, and stealthily on came the awful eyes until they reached the dead body at my feet. Then slowly they retreated, but this time with a strange grating sound and finally they disappeared in some black and distant recess of my dungeon. End of Chapter 18 Chapters 19 and 20 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 19 Battling in the Arena. Slowly I regained my composure and finally essayed again an attempt to remove the keys from the dead body of my former jailer but as I reached out into the darkness to locate it, I found to my horror that it was gone. Then the truth flashed on me. The owners of those gleaming eyes had dragged my prize away from me to be devoured in their neighboring lair, as they had been waiting for days, for weeks, for months, through all this awful eternity of my imprisonment to drag my dead carcass to their feast. For two days no food was brought me. But then a new messenger appeared, and my incarceration went on as before, but not again did I allow my reason to be submerged by the horror of my position. Shortly after this episode, another prisoner was brought in and chained near me. By the dim torchlight, I saw that he was a red Martian, and I could scarcely await the departure of his guards to address him. As their retreating footsteps died away in the distance, I called out softly the Martian word of greeting—Kaor. "'Who are you who speaks out of the darkness?' he answered. "'John Carter, a friend of the red men of Helium.' "'I am of Helium,' he said, "'but I do not recall your name.' "'And then I told him my story as I have written it here, omitting only any reference to my love for Dejah Thoris. He was much excited by the news of Helium's Princess and seemed quite positive that she and Sola could easily have reached a point of safety from where they left me. He said that he knew the place well because the defile through which the Warhoon warriors had passed when they discovered us was the only one ever used by them when marching to the south. Dejah Thoris and Sola enter the hills not five miles from a great waterway and are now probably quite safe he assured me. My fellow prisoner was Kantos Kan, a padwar, lieutenant, in the navy of Helium. He had been a member of the ill-fated expedition which had fallen into the hands of the Tharks at the time of Dejah Thoris' capture, and he briefly related the events which followed the defeat of the battleships. Badly injured and only partially manned, they had limped slowly toward Helium but while passing near the city of Zodanga, the capital of Helium's hereditary enemies among the red men of Barsoom, they had been attacked by a great body of war-vessels, and all but the craft to which Kantos Kan belonged were either destroyed or captured. His vessel was chased for days by three of the Zodangan warships, but finally escaped during the darkness of a moonless night. Thirty days after the capture of Dejah Thoris, or about the time of our coming to Thark, his vessel had reached Helium with about ten survivors of the original crew of seven hundred officers and men. Immediately seven great fleets, each of one hundred mighty warships, had been dispatched to search for Dejah Thoris, and from these vessels two thousand smaller craft had been kept out continuously in futile search for the missing princess. Two green Martian communities had been wiped off the face of Barsoom by the avenging fleets, but no trace of Dejah Thoris had been found. They had been searching among the northern hordes, and only within the past few days had they extended their quest to the south. Kantos Kan had been detailed to one of the small one-man fliers, and had had the misfortune to be discovered by the Warhoons while exploring their city. The bravery and daring of the man won my greatest respect and admiration. Alone, he had landed at the city's boundary, and on foot had penetrated to the buildings surrounding the plaza. For two days and nights he had explored their quarters and their dungeons, in search of his beloved princess, only to fall into the hands of a party of Warhoons, as he was about to leave after assuring himself that Dejah Thoris was not a captive there. During the period of our incarceration Kantos Kan and I became well acquainted, and formed a warm personal friendship. A few days only elapsed, however, before we were dragged forth from our dungeon for the great games. We were conducted early one morning to an enormous amphitheatre. Which, instead of having been built upon the surface of the ground, was excavated below the surface. It had partially filled with debris, so that how large it had originally been was difficult to say. In its present condition, it held the entire twenty thousand Warhoons of the assembled hordes. The arena was immense, but extremely uneven and unkempt. Around it, the Warhoons had piled building stone from some of the ruined edifices of the ancient city to prevent the animals and the captives from escaping into the audience, and at each end had been constructed cages to hold them until their turns came to meet some horrible death upon the arena. Kantos Kan and I were confined together in one of the cages. In the others were wild kalots, thoats, mad zitidars, green warriors and women of other hordes, and many strange and ferocious wild beasts of Barsoom which I had never before seen. The din of their roaring, growling, and squealing was deafening, and the formidable appearance of any one of them was enough to make the stoutest heart feel grave forebodings. Kantos can explained to me that at the end of the day one of these prisoners would gain freedom and the others would lie dead about the arena. The winners in the various contests of the day would be pitted against each other until only two remained alive, the victor in the last encounter being set free, whether animal or man the following morning the cages would be filled with a new consignment of victims, and so on throughout the ten days of the games. Shortly after we had been caged, the amphitheater began to fill, and within an hour every available part of the seating space was occupied. Dak Kova, with his jeds and chieftains, sat at the center of one side of the arena upon a large raised platform. At a signal from Dak Kova, The doors of two cages were thrown open, and a dozen green Martian females were driven to the center of the arena. Each was given a dagger, and then, at the far end, a pack of twelve kalots or wild dogs, were loosed upon them. As the brutes, growling and foaming, rushed upon the almost defenseless women, I turned my head that I might not see the horrid sight. The yells and laughter of the green horde bore witness to the excellent quality of the sport, and when I turned back to the arena, as Kantos Kan told me it was over, I saw three victorious Kalots snarling and growling over the bodies of their prey. The women had given a good account of themselves. Next a mad Zitadar was loosed among the remaining dogs, and so it went throughout the long, hot, horrible day. During the day I was pitted against first men and then beasts, but as I was armed with a long-sword, and always outclassed my adversary in agility and generally in strength as well, it proved but child's play to me. Time and time again I won the applause of the bloodthirsty multitude, and toward the end there were cries that I be taken from the arena and be made a member of the hordes of Warhoon. Finally there were but three of us left, a great green warrior of some far northern horde, Kantos Kan and myself. The other two were to battle, and then I to fight the conqueror for the liberty which was accorded the final winner. Kantos Kan had fought several times during the day and, like myself, had always proven victorious, but occasionally by the smallest of margins especially when pitted against the green warriors. I had little hope that he could best his giant adversary, who had mowed down all before him during the day. The fellow towered nearly sixteen feet in height, while Cantos Kan was some inches under six feet. As they advanced to meet one another, I saw for the first time a trick of Martian swordsmanship which centered Kantos Kan's every hope of victory and life on one cast of the dice. For as he came to within about twenty feet of the huge fellow, he threw his sword-arm far behind him over his shoulder, and with a mighty sweep hurled his weapon point-foremost at the green warrior. It flew true as an arrow, and piercing the poor devil's heart, laid him dead upon the arena. Kantos Kan and I were now pitted against each other, but as we approached to the encounter I whispered to him to prolong the battle until nearly dark, in the hope that we might find some means of escape. The horde evidently guessed that we had no hearts to fight each other, and so they howled in rage as neither of us placed a fatal thrust. Just as I saw the sudden coming of dark, I whispered to Kantos Kan to thrust his sword between my left arm and my body. As he did so, I staggered back, clasping the sword tightly with my arm, and thus fell to the ground with his weapon apparently protruding from my chest. Kantos Kan perceived my coup, and stepping quickly to my side, he placed his foot upon my neck, and withdrawing his sword from my body gave me the final death-blow through the neck which is supposed to sever the jugular vein, but in this instance the cold blade slipped harmlessly into the sand of the arena. In the darkness which had now fallen, none could tell but that he had really finished me. I whispered to him to go and claim his freedom, and then look for me in the hills east of the city, and so he left me. When the amphitheatre had cleared, I crept stealthily to the top, and as the great excavation lay far from the plaza and in an untenanted portion of the great dead city, I had little trouble in reaching the hills beyond. CHAPTER Twenty, IN THE ATMOSPHERE FACTORY For two days I waited there for Kantos Khan, but as he did not come I started off on foot in a northwesterly direction toward a point where he had told me lay the nearest waterway. My only food consisted of vegetable milk from the plants which gave so bounteously of this priceless fluid. Through two long weeks I wandered, stumbling through the nights guided only by the stars, and hiding during the days, behind some protruding rock or among the occasional hills I traversed. Several times I was attacked by wild beasts, strange, uncouth monstrosities that leaped upon me in the dark, so that I had ever to grasp my long-sword in my hand that I might be ready for them. Usually my strange, newly-acquired telepathic power warned me in ample time, but once I was down with vicious fangs at my jugular and a hairy face pressed close to mine before I knew that I was even threatened. What manner of thing was upon me I did not know, but that it was large and heavy and many-legged I could feel. My hands were at its throat before the fangs had a chance to bury themselves in my neck, and slowly I forced the hairy face from me and closed my fingers, vice-like, upon its windpipe. Without a sound we lay there, the beast exerting every effort to reach me with those awful fangs and I, straining to maintain my grip and choke the life from it as I kept it from my throat. Slowly my arms gave to the unequal struggle, and inch by inch the burning eyes and gleaming tusks of my antagonist crept toward me, until, as the hairy face touched mine again, I realized that all was over and then a living mass of destruction sprang from the surrounding darkness full upon the creature that held me pinioned to the ground. The two rolled growling upon the moss, tearing and rending one another in a frightful manner. But it was soon over and my preserver stood with lowered head above the throat of the dead thing which would have killed me. The nearer moon, hurtling suddenly above the horizon and lighting up the Barsoomian scene, showed me that my preserver was Woola, but from whence he had come or how found me I was at a loss to know. That I was glad of his companionship it is needless to say, but my pleasure at seeing him was tempered by anxiety as to the reason of his leaving Dejah Thoris. Only her death, I felt sure, could account for his absence from her, so faithful I knew him to be to my commands. By the light of the now brilliant moons I saw that he was but a shadow of his former self, and as he turned from my caress and commenced greedily to devour the dead carcass at my feet, I realized that the poor fellow was more than half starved. I myself was in but little better plight, but I could not bring myself to eat the uncooked flesh, and I had no means of making a fire. When Woola had finished his meal, I again took up my weary and seemingly endless wandering in quest of the elusive waterway. At daybreak of the fifteenth day of my search I was overjoyed to see the high trees that denoted the object of my search. At about noon I dragged myself wearily to the portals of a huge building, which covered perhaps four square miles and towered two hundred feet in the air. It showed no aperture in the mighty walls other than the tiny door at which I sank exhausted, nor was there any sign of life about it. I could find no bell or other method of making my presence known to the inmates of the place, unless a small round hole in the wall near the door was for that purpose. It was of about the bigness of a lead pencil, and thinking that it might be in the nature of a speaking-tube, I put my mouth to it and was about to call into it when a voice issued from it asking me whom I might be, where from, and the nature of my errand. I explained that I had escaped from the Warhoons and was dying of starvation and exhaustion. "'You wear the medal of a green warrior, and are followed by a calot, yet you are of the figure of a red man. In color you are neither green nor red. In the name of the ninth day, what manner of creature are you?" "'I am a friend of the red men of Barsoom, and I am starving. In the name of humanity, open to us,' I replied. Presently the door commenced to recede before me until it had sunk into the wall fifty feet, then it stopped and slid easily to the left, exposing a short, narrow corridor of concrete at the further end of which was another door, similar in every respect to the one I had just passed. No one was in sight, yet immediately we passed the first door it slid gently into place behind us and receded rapidly to its original position in the front wall of the building. As the door had slipped aside I had noticed its great thickness, fully twenty feet, and as it reached its place once more after closing behind us, Great cylinders of steel had dropped from the ceiling behind it and fitted their lower ends into apertures countersunk in the floor. A second and third door receded before me and slipped to one side as the first, before I reached a large inner chamber where I found food and drink set out upon a great stone table. A voice directed me to satisfy my hunger and to feed my calot, and while I was thus engaged My invisible host put me through a severe and searching cross-examination. "'Your statements are most remarkable,' said the voice, on concluding its questioning. "'But you are evidently speaking the truth, and it is equally evident that you are not of Barsoom. I can tell that by the conformation of your brain, and the strange location of your internal organs, and the shape and size of your heart.' Can you see through me? I exclaimed. Yes, I can see all but your thoughts, and were you a Barsoomian, I could read those. Then a door opened at the far side of the chamber, and a strange, dried up little mummy of a man came toward me. He wore but a single article of clothing or adornment a small collar of gold from which depended upon his chest a great ornament as large as a dinner-plate set solid with huge diamonds, except for the exact center which was occupied by a strange stone, an inch in diameter that scintillated nine different and distinct rays. The seven colors of our earthly prism and two beautiful rays which to me were new and nameless. I cannot describe them any more than you could describe red to a blind man. I only know that they were beautiful in the extreme. The old man sat and talked with me for hours, and the strangest part of our intercourse was that I could read his every thought while he could not fathom an iota from my mind unless I spoke. I did not apprise him of my ability to sense his mental operations and thus I learned a great deal which proved of immense value to me later, and which I would never have known had he suspected my strange power. For the Martians have such perfect control of their mental machinery that they are able to direct their thoughts with absolute precision. The building in which I found myself contained the machinery which produces that artificial atmosphere which sustains life on Mars. The secret of the entire process hinges on the use of the ninth ray, one of the beautiful scintillations which I had noted emanating from the great stone on my host's diadem. This ray is separated from the other rays of the sun by means of finely adjusted instruments placed upon the roof of the huge building, three-quarters of which is used for reservoirs in which the ninth ray is stored. This product is then treated electrically or rather certain proportions of refined electric vibrations are incorporated with it, and the result is then pumped to the five principal air-centres of the planet, where, as it is released, contact with the ether of space transforms it into atmosphere. There is always sufficient reserve of the ninth ray stored in the great building to maintain the present Martian atmosphere for a thousand years, and the only fear, as my new friend told me, was that some accident might befall the pumping apparatus. He led me to an inner chamber where I beheld a battery of twenty radium pumps, any one of which was equal to the task of furnishing all Mars with the atmosphere compound. For eight hundred years, he told me, he had watched these pumps which are used alternately a day each at a stretch, or a little over twenty-four and one-half Earth hours. He has one assistant who divides the watch with him. Half a Martian year, about three hundred and forty-four of our days, each of these men spend alone in this huge, isolated plant. Every red Martian is taught during the earliest childhood the principles of the manufacture of atmosphere, but only two at one time ever hold the secret of ingress to the great building which, built as it was with walls a hundred and fifty feet thick, is absolutely unassailable, even the roof being guarded from assault by aircraft by a glass covering five feet thick. The only fear they entertain of attack is from the green Martians or some demented red man, as all Barsoomians realize that the very existence of every form of life on Mars is dependent upon the uninterrupted working of this plant. One curious fact I discovered as I watched his thoughts was that the outer doors are manipulated by telepathic means. The locks are so finely adjusted that the doors are released by the action of a certain combination of thought waves. To experiment with my new found toy, I thought to surprise him into revealing this combination and so I asked him in a casual manner how he had managed to unlock the massive doors for me from the inner chambers of the building. As quick as a flash there leaped to his mind nine Martian sounds, but as quickly faded as he answered that this was a secret he must not divulge. From then on his manner toward me changed, as though he feared that he had been surprised into divulging his great secret and I read suspicion and fear in his looks and thoughts, though his words were still fair. Before I retired for the night, he promised to give me a letter to a nearby agricultural officer who would help me on my way to Zodanga, which he said was the nearest Martian city. "'But be sure that you do not let them know you are bound for Helium, as they are at war with that country.' My assistant and I are of no country, we belong to all Barsoom, and this talisman which we wear protects us in all lands, even among the green men, though we do not trust ourselves to their lands if we can avoid it," he added. "'And so, good night, my friend,' he continued. "'May you have a long and restful sleep. Yes, a long sleep.' and though he smiled pleasantly, I saw in his thoughts the wish that he had never admitted me, and then a picture of him standing over me in the night, and the swift thrust of a long dagger, and the half-formed words, I am sorry, but it is for the best good of Barsoom. As he closed the door of my chamber behind him, his thoughts were cut off from me, as was the sight of him which seemed strange to me in my little knowledge of thought-transference. What was I to do? How could I escape through these mighty walls? Easily could I kill him now that I was warned, but once he was dead I could no more escape, and with the stopping of the machinery of the great plant I should die with all the other inhabitants of the planet, all, even Dejah Thoris, were she not already dead. For the others I did not give the snap of my finger, but the thought of Dejah Thoris drove from my mind all desire to kill my mistaken host. Cautiously I opened the door of my apartment and, followed by Woola, sought the inner of the great doors. A wild scheme had come to me. I would attempt to force the great locks by the nine thought-waves I had read in my host's mind. Creeping stealthily through corridor after corridor and down winding runways which turned hither and thither, I finally reached the great hall in which I had broken my long fast that morning. Nowhere had I seen my host, nor did I know where he kept himself by night. I was on the point of stepping boldly out into the room when a slight noise behind me warned me back into the shadows of a recess in the corridor. Dragging Woola after me, I crouched low in the darkness. Presently the old man passed close by me, and as he entered the dimly lighted chamber which I had been about to pass through, I saw that he held a long thin dagger in his hand and that he was sharpening it upon a stone. In his mind was the decision to inspect the radium pumps, which would take about thirty minutes, and then return to my bedchamber and finish me. As he passed through the great hall and disappeared down the runway which led to the pump room, I stole stealthily from my hiding place and crossed to the great door, the inner of the three which stood between me and Liberty. Concentrating my mind upon the massive lock, I hurled the nine thought waves against it. In breathless expectancy I waited, when finally the great door moved softly toward me and slid quietly to one side. One after the other the remaining mighty portals opened at my command, and Woola and I stepped forth into the darkness, free, but little better off than we had been before, other than that we had full stomachs. Hastening away from the shadows of the formidable pile, I made for the first cross-road, intending to strike the central turnpike as quickly as possible. This I reached about morning, and, entering the first enclosure I came to, I searched for some evidences of a habitation. There were low, rambling buildings of concrete, barred with heavy, impassable doors, and no amount of hammering and hallowing brought any response. Weary and exhausted from sleeplessness, I threw myself upon the ground, commanding Woola to stand guard. Some time later I was awakened by his frightful growlings, and opened my eyes to see three red Martians standing a short distance from us and covering me with their rifles. I am unarmed and no enemy, I hastened to explain. I have been a prisoner among the green men and am on my way to Zodanga. All I ask is food and rest for myself and my Kalot, and the proper directions for reaching my destination. They lowered their rifles and advanced pleasantly toward me, placing their right hands upon my left shoulder, after the manner of their custom of salute, and asking me many questions about myself and my wanderings. They then took me to the house of one of them which was only a short distance away. The buildings I had been hammering at in the early morning were occupied only by stock and farm produce. The house proper, standing among a grove of enormous trees, and, like all red Martian homes, had been raised at night some forty or fifty feet from the ground on a large round metal shaft, which slid up or down within a sleeve sunk in the ground, and was operated by a tiny radium engine in the entrance hall of the building. Instead of bothering with bolts and bars for their dwellings, the Red Martians simply run them up out of harm's way during the night. They also have private means for lowering or raising them from the ground without if they wish to go away and leave them. These brothers, with their wives and children, occupied three similar houses on this farm. They did no work themselves, being government officers in charge. The labor was performed by convicts, prisoners of war, delinquent debtors, and confirmed bachelors, who were too poor to pay the high celibate tax which all red Martian governments impose. They were the personification of cordiality and hospitality, and I spent several days with them, resting and recuperating from my long and arduous experiences. When they had heard my story, I omitted all reference to Dejah Thoris and the old man of the atmosphere plant, they advised me to color my body to more resemble their own race, and then attempt to find employment in Zodanga, either in the Army or the Navy. The chances are small that your tale will be believed until after you have proven your trustworthiness and have won friends among the higher nobles of the court. This you can most easily do through military service as we are a warlike people on Barsoom," explained one of them, "'and save our richest favors for the fighting man. When I was ready to depart, they furnished me with a small domestic bull thoat, such as is used for saddle purposes by all red Martians. The animal is about the size of a horse and quite gentle, but in color and shape an exact replica of his huge and fierce cousin of the wilds. The brothers had supplied me with a reddish oil with which I anointed my entire body, and one of them cut my hair, which had grown quite long, in the prevailing fashion of the time, square at the back and banged in the front, so that I could have passed anywhere upon Barsoom as a full-fledged red Martian. My medal and ornaments were also renewed in the style of a Zodangan gentleman, attached to the house of Petor which was the family name of my benefactors. They filled a little sack at my side with Zodangan money. The medium of exchange upon Mars is not dissimilar from our own, except that the coins are oval. Paper money is issued by individuals as they require it, and redeemed twice yearly. If a man issues more than he can redeem, the government pays his creditors in full and the debtor works out the amount upon the farms or in mines which are all owned by the government. This suits everybody except the debtor, as it has been a difficult thing to obtain sufficient voluntary labor to work the great isolated farmlands of Mars, stretching as they do like narrow ribbons from pole to pole, through wild stretches peopled by wild animals and wilder men. When I mentioned my inability to repay them for their kindness to me, they assured me that I would have ample opportunity if I lived long upon Barsoom, and bidding me farewell, they watched me until I was out of sight upon the broad white turnpike. End of chapter 20